Welcome to Jack Chat, the official podcast from the Journal of Athletic Training, brought to you by the National Athletic Trainers Association. I'm Dr. Kara Radzak from the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and today uh, it is my pleasure to be joined by Dr. McLeod is the chair, director, and professor of athletic training, the professor uh, in the School of Osteopathic Medicine in Arizona, and also the uh, Dr. John Wood Endowed Chair for Sports Medicine at A.T. Still University. She's a fellow of the NATA, National Academy of Kinesiology, and the National Academies of Practice for Athletic Training. She also just recently was the recipient of the NATA Foundation's Medal for Distinguished Athletic Training Research this year. Dr. Fatchen DeCesaro De is an associate professor of athletic training at the University of Pittsburgh, and she continues her clinical practice as an athletic trainer with USA Figure Skating and the Team USA Medical Provider Pool. Thank you guys both so much for joining me here today, Tamara and Shelly. You're very welcome. Thank you for having us. So this is always a big topic of interest, the sports specialization. But let's kind of start off today's conversation by a framework of what characterizes sports specialization and what age groups are we kind of considering with this? So I, I think the current definition, um, although there are, we, we, we can talk about it, um, are some limitations to it, but it, it's really focusing and participating in one main sport at the exclusion of others uh, for typically greater than eight months of the year. Um, it can also be characterized by only participating in a single sport and limiting other extracurricular activities, um, you know, that could be academic or club-based. Um, when we talk about it, we often span through kind of the entire childhood to adolescent area, but I think where most of the concern is, is, is in the pre-high school athlete um, and really specializing at a very young age. And another thing that you guys brought up in your paper was this athlete development model. Can you give me a little bit of information and background of what is an athlete development model? Um, sure. So you you kind of saw that term start out in the personal training, um, you know, strength and conditioning world, and it's really kind of now blended into some national governing bodies that have developed these long-term athletic development models. The IOC has a model, and it's it's really just taking that athlete at, at a young age, youth age, and getting them involved in things that are fun. So it's fun. It's some fitness. It's getting them active and progressing them through levels as age appropriate. So, you know, you're going to start with just some, some fun and fitness. Now we're going to get a little more skill in there. Now we're really honing in on skills or maybe some conditioning that needs to be done um, to excel at that sport or activity. So it's really just moving them through from a very young age into adolescence with age appropriate um, activities while still keeping it fun and, and engaged in that manner. And how does this potentially overlap or is this drastically different than sports specialization in this pre-adolescent population? So most of the athlete development models, um, you know, really encourage avoidance of sports specialization in the young age. Um, you know, as Shelley noted, you know, it's about fun and fitness. And interestingly, um, in a play on words, the models from uh, USA Hockey um, and the USOPC 
um, their bottom foundational level is called fundamentals with the fun and capitals. And it's all about things like physical literacy, learning how to move, um, how to run. I think we've all probably seen, um, you know, kids in the park that, you know, it's arms flailing and there's no, you know, but that becomes a learned process the more that you do it. Um, and so engaging kids in activities that they think are fun, um, I think is is important. And I, I, the other piece that, I, that I'll hit on is these models are not just about physical development. Um, the athlete development models really also focus on, um, you know, teamwork, emotional support, psychosocial development, all of those positives that we know happens by engaging in sports and physical activities. Um, and the, the stages where someone might choose to specialize and get very competitive are typically late high school in these models. And so it's a lot of development until they really get to an age where they can both, um, emotionally, mentally, and physically withstand the nuances in competition of a single sport and, you know, really target with aspirations in that one particular sport. That's really helpful of hearing the, the differences between those two. And can you guys tell us the story of what led to this study? What was the need for it? Yeah, so Shelly and I have both been involved in uh, PRISM, the Pediatric Research in Sports Medicine Society, for several years. Um, and the way that that organization works is there are research interest groups on common topics of interest among this interdisciplinary, interprofessional um, society. So PRISM members are athletic trainers, physicians, orthopedic surgeons, physical therapists. Um, we even have a, a nurse um, who's been a part of some of our rigs, um, psychologists and others. So it's a very kind of whole whole interprofessional group. Um, and, you know, we talk in that group a lot about sports specialization. And I think we kind of had this realization that, well, your group has recommendations. Our group has recommendations. Does anyone use them in clinical practice? And I think that was kind of the impetus for the particular study is really get a sense of what do healthcare providers know and use uh, related to these kinds of recommendations with their patients. And so you um, purposely recruited from PRISM members, but you also went out to uh, other professional organizations. Can you give us an overview of the professional organizations, why you chose them, and the population that you sampled? Sure. So um, as Sarah said, we we use the resources that we have in the RID. Um, and, and it is a really diverse group of healthcare professionals, which is part of what makes it so amazing. Um, you know, is that we're sitting down and we're just kind of throwing all these ideas out there. And I, I think it's always interesting to hear to the different challenges that the different healthcare practitioners have, because we, you know, you don't consider that when you're in your own, in your own world. So through those discussions, we obviously talked about the associations that we were really familiar with, myself as an athletic trainer, the NATA knowing those recommendations, the the physicians knowing, um, you know, AMSSM and their organization. And then uh, like nurse practitioner, um, NAPNAP, which is their, her uh, pediatric nurse practitioner organization that I didn't, I had never even heard of that before. And, but it was amazing that we were able to reach out to that group and, and use the connections within our resource. So I think we really looked at 
for starters, who was in that group that we could tap into um, in order to use their professional societies and those connections that we have in those professional societies, but then also kicked around some other ideas as well as just in talking with colleagues, you know, as to what other groups do maybe they belong to that they think would serve as a, as a good resource. And you guys put out this, um, this survey and give me some background of kind of with the survey instrument, what areas of interest were you addressing? Give us a little bit more information about this. Yeah, so, you know, we we were, as with a lot of times when you start a survey research project, um, you you know, you want everything all the way to the moon and, and back, right? So we, we definitely had to rein it in, but we really focused on their awareness of or uh, recommendations from different professional organization and sports governing bodies. Like, did they know they even existed? Um, their confidence in um, their knowledge about the recommendations. So not only being aware that NATA has recommendations on sports specialization, but how confident are you that you know what those are? Um, we looked at their utilization. How often uh, or how frequently do they use it when counseling patients and parents. Um, and then um, barriers, what barriers do they feel might exist in being able to actually use this information? So it kind of gets at a little bit of knowledge and confidence, but then also the implementation side of things um, and how are they perhaps using or not using um, these recommendations uh, to counsel patients and in the care of patients, whether they're seeing them during a PPE or in an in an injury context. Let's start off with that knowledge of recommendations. Um, overall, what were some general uh, takeaways from that knowledge aspect and were there differences between the providers? Yeah, so, you know, we looked at, again, awareness and, and the confidence in, in knowledge. Um, not surprisingly, the physicians rated themselves as both more aware um, of more of the uh, recommendations than the athletic trainers and nurse practitioners. Um, and then the athletic trainers and the physicians tend to be uh, more aware of some of the recommendations, the nuances of how many hours per week uh, should youth athletes engage in sport and that sort of thing. Collectively, uh, when we looked across all of the healthcare providers, um, they tended to be much more aware and confident um, in their knowledge regarding the types of recommendations from NATA, AMSSM, AOSSM, the AAP, so the medical groups, um, and interestingly, less aware or confident of recommendations from the sport governing bodies such as the IOC, uh, MLB, NBA, um, and USA Hockey. So what were some of the things that were similar or different as far as barriers to using the recommendations? I think um, I think some of the similarities in using was their familiar, familiarity with that. You know, so even if um, if there was an athletic trainer that maybe they knew of the recommendations, but maybe they didn't know exactly which group it was coming from. But they were definitely familiar with having those recommendations and making them. Um, I think where I saw maybe a little bit of surprise for me too is just in the utilization where physicians were confident that they were going to be maybe taken a little bit more seriously by the coaches or the or the student athletes or the the parents um, that they're making these recommendations to, and that just kind of fell on 
the fact that they were, you know, most likely there for an appointment, they're being seen for something going on, so they're going to be listening into that one-on-one -on -one with the physician. Um, whereas some of the other healthcare providers, their thoughts were maybe that they just weren't taken as seriously, not the provider themselves, but the recommendations. Like, this is a great idea, but, you know, I've already paid for the travel ball this year, so this is what we're doing. You know, so it was it was a little surprising there, um, just in the difference, at least for me. Um, and then also a little bit of like, so almost like a lack of trust that it was going to be taken and used. Not necessarily a trust in the recommendation, but that it would be implemented once that that athlete or the parents kind of left the, the office. Yeah. And just to, you know, add on to that, I think with the nurse practitioners, um, you know, barriers to them in some ways was just being aware and, and knowing where to find this information. And, you know, I guess that's not surprising if you think of, you know, most nurse practitioners are generalists, right? So they're going to be in your pediatrician and, and family practice offices. So they've got to know a lot about, you know, a, a lot of different things. And so to really have kind of some in-depth knowledge, uh, perhaps in things as intricate as some of these recommendations. Um, so I think for that group, you know, to overcome those barriers, you know, education and outreach is certainly important. Um, and then for the athletic trainers, uh, I think, you know, one other theme that kind of stood is, you know, they weren't sure that if they said anything to the parents, the parents would take it seriously, right? It kind of gets to what Shelly said, we've already, already paid for this. And so, it, I think it was almost a, a laissez-faire approach in some respects that, well, I don't want to waste my breath talking about this because it's not going to change the parent or the athlete behavior anyways. Um, and I, I don't know if that's the best approach. I think, you know, there's still things that we can do to, to try to educate. I think it's trying to find, um, you know, an appropriate mechanism to, to really share with these families that specialization is not always the best path forward. Um, and, you know, we we tend to do it Every so often, I mean, I think leading up to every Super Bowl, right? There's always some stat about how many of these guys who made the Super Bowl were multi-sport athletes or that Tom didn't, Brady didn't start playing football until he was already in high school. Those, it, those are the stories that I think will resonate more with parents and athletes uh, rather than all of the medical advice that we can kind of throw at them. So there needs to be some nice combination um, of sharing that information um, and ATs hoping, you know, to, to develop up some talking points for parents that might actually resonate with the parents. And kind of going on that, one of the things that that came out for me while looking at this and reading this paper is that the lack of knowledge on those sports and national governing bodies, um, where do you think the that could potentially play a role in educating parents if from a clinician standpoint, we basically only know the clinician-based guidelines versus informing upon the sports-specific ones. Yeah, I think, and this is totally out of my wheelhouse as an athletic trainer, but I think that comes down to marketing and, and making the public know that that is there. I think um, some of the healthcare practitioners knew that they were there. I think they're hard to find and be aware of unless maybe you're working in that arena or with that specific sport or have a, a an interest in that specific sport or activity. Um, but, you know, wouldn't it be great to see some commercials during the games that, you know, we have these recommendations um, or some of those more marquee players, you know, coming out and talking about them. So um, as much as we would love to think, or I would love to think that they're going to come to the athletic trainer or the physician or the nurse practitioner for this information. 
it's probably a matter of, of marketing and public relations um, and having some of those you know more public facing individuals and in, in marquee events. And, and yeah, I think, and just to follow up, it's the, the dissemination piece is critical. Um, you know, if you go to the website where the article is that kind of has the NBA's stuff, there's a wonderful infographic. But it wasn't until I dove in there that I was like, oh, this is fantastic. And, you know, as as a lot of athletic trainers in the secondary school setting, you know, don't have great resources or access to libraries that they would be able to, number one, go and look and then download this nice PDF and somehow turn it into a poster for their athletic training facility. Um, so I, I think it's in some ways on us as the researchers to also, you know, kind of share some of these these um, different resources so that you know the athletic athletic trainers who are in the secondary school or even the middle school setting now, you know, are, are able to easily access some of this information because um, otherwise it just sits there in you know the the web space and um, you know isn't necessarily used by anyone. And I think that's a huge problem um, in this area is just kind of that implementation aspect, um, as we kind of noted with people not necessarily using a lot of these recommendations. Yeah, I mean, to quote your own study to you, right, NATA athletic trainers, 84% knew the NATA guidelines, but in the NBA guidelines, only 7.9% knew mm -hmm. the NBA guidelines yeah. existed. I, and I think maybe what shocked me a little bit was, um, you know, the, the awareness regarding the Major League Baseball, because I have always thought that they have done a great job with, um, you know, promoting pitch counts and pitch limits and, and that sort of thing. And, and I guess I thought maybe it was more widespread than what we tended to see, I think, from the results uh, of our particular study. 25%. Yeah. Yeah. 25%. Yeah. So when we talk about that, that pitch count, is are are those the MLB guidelines? Are they one in the same? Um, yeah. So so what we looked at as far as some of the very sp the specific guidelines. Um, some of them are more robust than others, but obviously in baseball, that is their biggest concern is, is pitch counts. So a lot of their recommendations uh, regarding specialization, um, it doesn't always use like the specialization term, but it gets at how often should someone be throwing. Um, the NBA guidelines, for example, are very specific in um, by athlete age, starting at about age seven, how many days a week should they be practicing? How many games should they have per week? How long should those games be? Those are the kind of things that they get at. So maybe it's a little more related to kind of the load element. So, you know, I could see if you if you don't work with, with athletes who play basketball, don't see a lot, you know, you might not necessarily understand that. But all of these things are so important to the overall concept of sports specialization. That sounds like really great resources for any of those parents out there to take to their <laughs> to the coaches. <laughs> so um, speaking of kind of parents and other and coaches and other key stakeholders, what were some of the disconnects that you found between your population and previous literature as far as evaluating perceptions of these other key stakeholder groups? Uh, I think the the biggest thing was probably the concern about sports specialization in that the healthcare providers that we surveyed, um, especially the physicians and athletic trainers, um, had concerns about sports specialization. Um, 
Whereas in other studies that have looked at coaches and parents, about 60% of those thought it's okay to play on two teams at the same time. Um, never mind multiple teams, you know, throughout throughout the year. So um, you know, there's other studies that look at baseball and, you know, 83% aren't aware of pitch count uh, rules or recommendations. Um, another, you know, study looked at parents and found that 80% were not aware of safe sports recommendations. Uh, most parents didn't even monitor their kids' pitch count anyways. Um, and so there seems to be a bit of a disconnect in regards to the concern that healthcare providers have about, you know, some of these recommendations and and trying to sample playing multiple sports, watching volume, um, and perhaps parents not necessarily um, considering those as they consider their child's sport participation. Were there any other things that surprised you? I know, Shelley, you talked about some, but were there any things that came out that were surprising or even alarming? I think for me, it was just, um, again, that that lack of trust that they had that they were going to actually be implemented once they, they left. And I think I just wish that we felt more positive, you know, as a whole, as healthcare practitioners for that. And that's not um, anything derogatory towards like the, the, the coaches or parents, you know, that are in that position, because as a parent myself, too, I've I've been in positions where I've started spiraling down the, you know, sports specialization cascade, and I'm like, put the brakes on. This is insanity. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I just think that um, feeling a little more confident um, was a surprising to me that they weren't having that confidence that they were that they were feeling. Yeah, and and like I mentioned, that just the awareness of I think the sport governing body recommendations. Um, specifically baseball, you know, surprised me because like I said, I have thought they've always done a great job with kind of marketing that information, even with public service announcements. I mean, Major League Baseball is one that that has actually kind of, you know, taken some approaches on that. So, um, you know, I, I think those are probably the, the biggest things. We need to do, a, again, a better job of disseminating information so that, it, you know, it can be used not only by healthcare providers, but, you know, by um, the youth sports stakeholder groups as well. So to all those clinicians out there that are listening to this, that read the paper and are like, oh, I would fall into that category of I, I'm not where I should be. What are some good first steps? What are some places that people should look into getting more knowledge from in this area? Yeah, I, th I think it's just getting access to some of the the resources. Um, and, you know, Shelly and I, if, if an athletic trainer is having trouble finding one of the papers that we cite, certainly reach out to us. We're more than happy to, to share it with you. Um, there are a lot of great infographics related to this topic. The NATA has several on their At Your Own Risk um, website. The AMSSM has some on their website. Um, American Academy of Pediatrics. So yes, it can take a little bit to kind of dig through some of those resources, um, but the professional organizations that we mentioned in the paper, as well as the sporting, um, you know, just kind of looking them up and, and um, you know, digging into some of those resources would certainly be a, a great start. What are some areas of future research or directions that you are really excited about this 
area of sports specialization moving into? You want to start? <laughs> so I think for me, um, it's not going away, right? So sports specialization is probably as much as we'd like to see it dwindle down. There's, there's always going to be a little piece of it um, that we're going to be battling. So I think for me, it's kind of looking at that that spot between specialization and when can we maybe prevent or reduce some risk of injury or overuse injury. So it's kind of like finding that sweet spot. Like, so let's keep let's keep the specializers that need and want to be specialized happy and, and content with what they're doing. Cause some of those that that is their outlet and that is their, you know, their break in the day and, and how they um how that's their mental health is that going every day to practice and, and pounding away at it. Um, but so where do we find that spot where we can continue to keep them in that um, but still have some reduction for risk reduction for injury and, and still kind of avoid that burnout. And I think, you know, there are some sports, I work in figure skating, that they're never going to not specialize. They almost have to. You know, there are some sports where it's just, it has to happen. Um, so where can we, where can we intervene to make sure that they're staying as healthy as they possibly can, still having um, a great experience and, and staying in love with their sport while they can, you know, still specialize to the point that they need to to achieve the, their best. Yeah, and I think there's there's two areas that I'm excited about. The first is actually just better defining what this is that we're talking about. Um, most studies that have, you know, investigated sports specialization use a scale that was developed by Dr. Jayanthi out of Emory. Um, and I think it has served us well to get to this point, um, but there are some limitations to that scale. So um, Dr. Uh, David Bell and the group at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, um, they've been trying to better develop a scale um, and have published the first piece uh, from their scale development in JAT, um, looking at the Delphi approach, um, and they're continuing to validate it. So I think the next big thing is, is finally getting this scale launched and used in research, um, you know, to, to really start to better understand the nuances of sport specialization from not only, you know, just do you play one sport, but some some volume um, and load parameters in some ways. So I think that's the first one. And then I think the second one, Shelly hit on it very um, briefly, but is the concept of burnout and the mental health side of sport specialization. A lot of the work to date has really been on um, the physical element with the increased risk for overuse injuries, um, with some work being done related to mental health, but we all know how important that is. Um, and so I think continuing to really focus on the emotional aspects. Um, and like she said, specialization may not be bad for everyone if we have good supportive networks um, of the coaches, the family, the medical providers, and have appropriate risk mitigation strategies in place. Um, you know, I, I think there could be some positive spins on some of these stories um, that, that we don't necessarily document as well as we probably should. Perfect. Thank you, guys. And just to remind everybody, this article, as well as all of the Journal of Athletic Training's offerings are open source, um, thanks to the NATA. And again, Dr. McLeod and Dr. Fetchin Duchess Aro, I am so, so thankful for you to join us today. And thank you again. Thank you. Thank you.